When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Stacks. Formed in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1965, the Chocolate Watch Band only had limited success in their 1960s heyday. Their records failed to pierce the top 200, let alone the top 40, and they never played outside of California. But today, they are regarded by 60s garage and psych connoisseurs as among the greatest bands of their era. That reputation founded on a fistful of fantastic 45s and some rare but highly regarded albums, and sealed and cemented into place by an electrifying appearance in the cult movie Riot on Sunset Strip. My guest today, Dave Aguilar, was the dynamic lead singer and frontman for the band's classic lineup, which also featured guitarists Mark Loomis and Sean Tolby, bass player Bill Flores, and drummer Gary Andrew Jasovich. And he's also fronted a series of reunion lineups, the first of which debuted in 1999 at an Ugly Things sponsored show in San Diego we called 6699. On January 11th, 2024, Dave will be appearing at the Whiskey A Go-Go in Hollywood, backed by my own band, The Loons, for what will likely be the final performance of the Chocolate Watch Band. That seemed like as good an opportunity as any to sit down with him for a conversation about the band's history. Hope you enjoy it. Dave Aguilar, um, prior to joining the Chocolate Watch Band, you were a biology student, right? Tell me about your life prior to becoming the singer of the Chocolate Watch Band. Uh, I'd always been a kid scientist in my bedroom with, uh, you know, telescopes and butterfly collections and BB guns. And uh, I, I just love nature. And so it was a part of my life. And growing up in California in the Bay Area when it was all orchards, it was so easy for a kid to just love nature and be part of it. Right. Where were you studying? Uh, I studied Cal State University at San Jose, and then I went to UC Santa Cruz, and then I did more studying at the University of Colorado in Boulder, so I bounced all over the place. So the watch band, you actually had other bands, right? There was a band called The Early Morning Rain. Yeah, we had The Early Morning Rain. It was uh, It was a fun band. It was rough. It was, we'd like to think edgy, but um, the only applause we ever got, and this is absolute truth, we played a, a show at uh, a high school auditorium and somebody pulled a plug on the amplifier and the crowd cheered. <laughs> no, not what you're looking for. <laughs> no, no, we were, we were terrible, but we were earnest and we were really trying hard. <laughs> so... You know, there was a band, there was a chocolate watch band before you joined with uh, Danny Faye 
the singer. And uh, how did you become aware of them? I mean, how did you end up connecting? Uh, I wasn't aware of them at all. Uh, We had not crossed paths. And that's that's understandable because we were playing high school gyms and roller skating rinks and any place anybody could possibly play. So I'd never even heard of them. I remember there was a battle of the bands one Sunday and a new band, The Other Side. I was watching them very enviously because that's what the Chocolate Watch Band had turned into, evidently. And they were playing, they were doing nothing but covers of The Who. And we had not heard The Who. So this was new for us. And they launched into Boris the Spider. I thought that was amazing. And I saw these two guys looking at me in the audience, and it was Sean and Mark and checking me out. And I got a phone call from them later that afternoon that said, hey, you want to be in a band? And uh, I thought for almost 10 seconds and said, yeah, yeah, sure, let's do it. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> so evidently, was, they they were aware of you. Uh, yeah. For some reason, they must have seen you performing with Early Morning uh, they, Rain, I guess. They must have, I don't know, or or they could have just been scouting out that day, checking out all the different bands to see who was playing. And uh, so I got drafted. <laughs> it, yeah, so there was a new start for the, for the watch band, really, at that point, with this new lineup. So tell me about the five guys that are sort of like the classic chocolate watch band lineup. Classic chocolate watch band lineup was, and I always start with Billy Flo on bass, because... Uh, he was such an incredible bass player. He was the happiest, nicest guy. He shook hands with me when I walked through the door. And he was the first person I met at Mark's house. Mark was on lead guitar, quiet, quiet, moody, kind of pensive guy, but really knew what he wanted to do. Sean was all grins and fun, good looking, older than the rest of us. And then there was Gary. Gary was in high school. And he had short hair, and uh, we called a lot of practices short because Gary had to go home and do algebra homework. So it uh, <laughs> it, <laughs> it was an odd mixture, but but Michael, they were so good. You know, everybody knows when you're in a band that there's one or two people that yeah, you're pushing them along, you're hoping they're going to come along. There may eventually work out. If not, you're going to do a trade. You're going to, you know, do two draft picks and get rid of the the drummer and get somebody else. But it wasn't that way. It just clicked. Right, right away. Right away. So tell me about you know how you went about putting together a set, a live set. What was what was in your repertoire at the beginning? We started immediately, which was interesting to me because they introduced me to the Yardbirds. I had not heard more than one song by the Yardbirds. I had listened to the Kinks, but it was you know all day and all of the night, and uh, nothing deeper that that Ray Davis was writing at the time. So we we looked at that, but they had already done their homework. And it, it it astounded me because they were listening to songs that I'd never heard before, and yet they made sense. They were B-sides. They were British uh, releases of, of songs that we had not heard in the States. And so consequently, 
we weren't copying like some of the other bands were the the top 40. And I was just talking to John Sharkey today and the, of the syndicate, and we were laughing and talking about kids and how they had learned paperback writer in two hours when it came out on a Friday afternoon and they played it that night. <laughs> and that was really what so many of the bands were doing, but we weren't, we were hearing other people's music that nobody else had heard before and then reinterpreting it. So right from the get-go, we were starting to hear our sound and feel our force and understand who played what and where and how to ad lib on stage, which was critical for us. We had set songs, but a song could change in the middle and you just felt it. And you know this as a lead singer. You've done this before, I'm certain. You're, you're moving along and you're going back and forth and wait a minute, this vibe is just right. And the audience is into it. So you stretch it out a little bit. You stretch it. Now you bring it back up. It's just a natural occurrence. And with songs that many people thought were ours, uh, it was different. It was right. a different experience. So um, from what I understand, you were doing stuff like I'm a man and mystic eyes, songs yeah. like that that loan themselves to, you know, improvisation they, they do and, and with that harmonica going wild in there and uh each night you improvised a little bit differently you, you saw what worked and uh boy i'll tell you what if i didn't lose five or six pounds on stage just sweating it off it wasn't a good night <laughs> so so how did you go about sort of how did that on stage persona of yours evolve i mean you i don't imagine you already had that in place when you first stepped into the watch band oh you know it it grew but i'm a lead singer by accident i really was not meant to be a lead singer and uh i had a guitar i had a green gretch oh i love that green gretch guitar hollow body and i had purchased it to try to learn to play it and i really couldn't play it i was terrible on guitar but a friend who we used to give a ride to high school, he used to hitchhike. My dad would take him to high school. Uh, we met one day and he said, hey, look, you got a guitar. I need a guitar. I'm a singer and a player. And you can be in our band if you let me use your guitar. And I said, I'm in. <laughs> so, you know, I did tambourine and harmonica and I sang harmonies. And one night at a club in downtown San Jose, uh, halfway through the set, he went to the bathroom with my guitar and neither one of them came back. And the <laughs> club owner, the club is true. Club owner said, you guys got to finish. You got another hour and a half and you need a singer. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And I just stepped up and that was the start. That wow, was okay. the start. Someone's got to do it. And then it felt natural from there. <laughs> it right? did. It yeah. felt very natural and it grew. But lead singing fits the song. Uh, the song doesn't fit the lead singer. You uh, you feel it, and you're in that groove, and it just pulls whatever it's going to pull out of you. And uh, and I have to say, I saw some really big headlining bands. It used to amaze me that, that some of the singers were, they did not want to go out on stage. They had stage fright, and uh, it, it really affected them until they got out there and they had to do it. And that always astounded me because I'm a ham. Put me out there. Wind me up. Let me go. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I love it. I, I feast on it. <laughs> yeah. So when the watch band came together, the classic watch band, this is early 1966. So by then, 
the San Francisco music scene was exploding, right? With bands like the Jefferson Airplane, the Dead, Quicksilver. How did the Chocolate Watch Band fit into that whole scenario? Well, we had a handicap because we were from San Jose. So we weren't part of that scene yet. But the odd thing is we matured so quickly and in doing so, we leapfrogged right into the Bay Area. And and we were picked up by Bill Graham. Bill Graham had heard of us and booked us in. And the first show we were going to play was with the Mothers of Invention and Lenny Bruce. It was his last comedy show. Wow. And we went and stood in line because a oh, week before, because we'd never seen the Fillmore. I hadn't. And we went up there and we're waiting in this big, long line. It had to be 100, 200 feet long, people waiting to get in. And here comes this gruffy-looking guy that looks like he works on the wharf, coming down the line, frisking people and taking bottles and taking stuff away from them. And he walks up to us and he says, you got any booze? We said, no, we're we're the band that's going to play here next week. He said, the Chocolate Watch Band. We said, yeah. He says, I'm Bill Graham. Let's go. And he took us arm in arm and strolled us into the Fillmore, past the lines. In we went. And uh, uh, we felt like kings. So to see that room and, and to see the atmosphere and the bands that were playing, we were suddenly there. And we we lifted right up to the occasion and felt like it was home. Yeah, right. And, th- and at one point, Bill Graham was interested in managing you, right? Yeah, after that first show, he took us aside, called us up to his office. And he said, look, uh, I'm opening Fillmore East. I'm going to shuttle the dead and the airplane back and forth. We want you on the bill. I want to manage you. You need to be part of this. And there was something prophetic also. He said, you guys need to start writing your own music. But uh, uh, I want to manage this group. You'll go as a package and you'll start touring. And we had just a week earlier signed with another manager. And so we were we were kids. We were 17, 18 years old. We didn't realize you could break a contract. We didn't realize you could do any of that. And so we went along with the status quo. But uh, to this day, I wondered what, what would have happened if we'd been one of the, the house bands. Yeah, right. That would have been a huge boost forward. But I guess your manager was what? Ron Roop. Ron Roop, yeah. Yeah. So he, But he was able to connect you with Ed Cobb. And his he production did. company, Greengrass Productions. So how did that come about? What what do you remember about that? We got a call one day. Ron came in and said, uh, you're going over to this high school gymnasium on a Saturday after Saturday about noon. And you're going to try out for a, a recording contract. Uh, there's going to be a producer come in to listen to you. And I said, great. And so that morning, I just uh, <laughs> I had the brakes done on my car. And I remember I'm the last one to pull into the auditorium. And just as I'm pulling up, my rear tire passes me up and bounces off the wall in front of me. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm betting that guy this morning did not do the lug nuts tight enough for that tire. So I'm skidding <laughs> into the parking lot thinking, oh, no, what else is going to happen here? And went inside and there was Ed Cobb. He looked like a cowboy. He had cowboy boots. He had a big silver belt buckle on. Good looking guy. Tall, 6'3", I think. And uh, he just said, I came here to see what you guys can do. And we said, oh, you haven't seen anything yet. And we <laughs> launched in and did a couple of songs. He said, you're signed. Oh, great. Do you remember yeah. what songs you did? Uh, Bald-Headed Woman and uh, a great old kink song. 
And I think we probably did. Uh, I'm a man. I'm sure we did. I'm a man. Cause I, we love playing that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so what was the next move then to co- go down to LA and record? How, how quickly did that happen? It happened fairly quickly, but having very little experience in the studio, we didn't know what to expect. And so they flew us down and we got drunker than skunks on the airplane. And uh, we got off, we were chauffeured into the studio, American studios. And there are all of these albums on the wall, gold albums on the wall. That was very impressive. And it took us a while to, to get the sound and to get everything tuned in. But once we started, Ed Cobb had a couple of songs he wanted us to do. But he said, is there any song you guys can just do that you do in person that we can get a sound check and see what it sounds like? And we said, yeah. And we did, come on. And it was a cover of the Stone song that uh, they had covered of Chuck Berry. And so we just did it. It was a throwaway. But little did we know it would end up on the on the album. But uh, we went immersed immediately into recording. And what was difficult is I would have loved to have recorded live where we were all together at the same time, but we didn't. So the band had four days to record, and then they left. They went to Mexico to party and left me behind. And I had an afternoon to do all the vocals. That was it. Right. And by that time, I, I should have learned them or ready to go. And so we do one or two takes on vocals and that was it. Although sometimes a song would take four hours for the guys, five hours to record. And so it was that cut and dried and quick. And what surprised us is that Ed said, look, you'll come back, you'll finish this album and uh, we're halfway through it. So we were content. We had shows to play. We had gigs to play. We were gone. I mean, we loved being on stage. We didn't think much of it. But they didn't call us back, and we wondered why we weren't going to finish our album. And then suddenly one day this album shows up, and evidently he was under pressure from Tower Records to get this album done. And so he filled it in any way he could, which is criminal, because he she should have let us do our albums. Yeah, But he had studio musicians, uh, Richie Podolar, great musician. Uh, they filled it out as to what Ed Cobb from L.A. thought a San Francisco psychedelic band would look like and sound like. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, Michael, we were crushed. Sean had a little cabin up in uh, Bear Mountain outside of Santa Cruz, outside of Los Gatos, where we would meet. It was an old log cabin. And I remember we took a case of those albums and threw them off the back deck and shot at him with his grandfather's double barrel 12 gauge shotgun to see who could hit him the most. We were that upset with our album. Wow. We, it was skeet shooting off the back. We didn't want to listen to it. Yeah. Just blew us away. Backing up, first of all, there was a single. Yeah. Going back to that first session and a song that written by Ed called uh, Sweet Young Thing, which is, I think, one of the best things you ever did. I thought so, too. I should have been a hit. But then again, you know, this is the, the, the humor. <laughs> you, you call it humor. 
of uh, <laughs> young rock and roll is that uh, Tower Records, uh, same one as the Standells used as distributors, somebody there was shuffling through and saw Chocolate Watch Band and thought, huh, this must be a black rhythm and blues group. So signed us off to Uptown Records. And we should have known. We knew something was wrong. Because for Uptown Records, we did a show at the Oakland Coliseum. And we thought, whoa, we've never played Oakland before. And it's a Coliseum on a Sunday afternoon. This is going to be really cool, knowing nothing else. And we walk in, and there's Chuck Berry sitting on the steps with a toothpick, waiting for his backup band to come come and play with him. We walk inside, and there's the coasters, and there's little Dion. And we say, wait a minute, this is a black review. These are all black artists. This is all rhythm and blues. And uh, and somebody came up and said, so, you're the chocolate watchman. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> but we never put two and two together. So that's who our label was sending us out with. And uh, it, it took us a while before we finally figured it out. But it was too late. How did you go down at that show in Oakland? Oh, it went great. We paid the uh, the bouncer off. This guy was huge. He, he was the size of an automobile. And we walked up to him and we said, hey, doesn't Chuck Berry have a backup band? And he said, yeah, we're waiting for him. It's a local group. And Sean said, I got 20 bucks in my wallet. We pooled all the money we had. I think we came up with about $30, a couple of joints, uh, a couple of pills probably. And we walked up to the guy and said, look, if you tell that band that Chuck's already gone on stage and the manager's going to kill him because they were late and we'll do it. They let us do it. He said, I want the pills. I'll take the pot. I'll take the money. And we went up <laughs> on stage and played with Chuck Berry. Okay. And uh, he just said, see, you know, Johnny be good and see. And that was it. Uh, we just followed right along. And uh, that was our show. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> So, Sweet Young Thing, uh, was that a song that you would add to your live set or not? No. The reason why is that it lagged. It lagged behind what we were doing by about two months. So we were waiting to finish the album because we wanted to do it all together. And so we probably should have been playing it. That's the irony, I think, of of, of the watch band that the stuff that we play today and everybody knows that we did, we didn't play it that much on stage. Some songs we did, Baby Blue, uh, No Way Out, we played on stage. Uh, I'm Not Like Everybody Else, obviously. Uh, but some of the other ones we didn't. We were waiting for that album to come out and for promotion, and it really never materialized. Right. So the so the the band, the Chocolate Watch Band that people saw – in the Bay Area back then was different to the chocolate watch band that we know from the records. They're two very different bands much, in a lot of ways. Very much so. And uh, especially with the instrumentals, we didn't play instrumentals. So it was a, a difficult transition for us. And uh, with the disappointment, it was, it was really disappointing to, to hear this. We were told that we would be able to go back and do another album. And we said, look, it's us on this album. They said, yes. And it wasn't. Uh, because by that time, Mark had uh, was hearing different tunes in his head. He really, he really wanted to do something a little bit more esoteric, 
uh, not quite so much rock and roll. And so the band was fraying even at that point. Going back to the to that first single again, and you mentioned uh, your version of Dylan's "It's All now, Over Now, Baby Blue," which is a really fantastic arrangement. Um, how did you go about putting that together? I mean, I, it seems to be based on the version by them, but you put your own spin on it as well. Do you remember how it came together? I I was the Dylan fan in the group. Billy Flo was more Motown. Mark was more Airplane. Uh, jazz, avant-garde. Sean was very much kinks and yardbirds. I brought Dylan, and I had brought that in. And people have mentioned the 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 them version of it. I don't remember hearing it. I may have, but uh, we've always covered Dylan uh, on the newer albums. We've covered him. He was just such a phenomenal songwriter that uh, how could we not? Yeah. So it 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 was a stage song that we'd been doing for right from day one. That was one of the first songs we learned that I brought in and said, I want to I really want to sing this song. So I don't I to this day, I don't think I've gone back and listened to the them version of it. I probably should. And it might have been influenced by it. It might have been the other guys were influenced by it. I don't know. I, I yeah. never gave it a thought. Well, the the watch band version is one of the best Dylan covers, I think. I mean, it's just great. And you change the song so much. I mean, you you begin it with like the third verse or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Because, <laughs> of course, all Dylan songs are like 20 verses. <laughs> I know. You get, you bring your lunch. This thing's going to take a while. But, uh, yeah, I did. I remember uh, sitting in there and chopping it up so that it was meaningful to me. Uh, and, uh, yeah, rearranging the lyrics. I remember yeah. that. You did a great – it's a great editing job. And editing is very important. <laughs> Yeah, when it comes to things like that. Well, on our new album, we did Desolation Row. That's been edited down also. Oh, that's a very and, wordy song, yeah. Oh, yeah, in the different version. And I've got a new one in the can, Time Sierra Changing, that is spacey, bizarre. That That's the beautiful thing about Dylan's songs. They, they can be interpreted in so many different ways. Let's talk about the the next real watch band single, which was Misty Lane. Yeah. Again, again, a song atypical of what you would be doing live, but I think a really fabulous song. What do you remember about learning that song and recording it? I, uh, the recording went fairly fast. Um, probably we did that in less than two hours because we would back song up to song up. It went very quickly. And I remember that uh, I jumped octaves in it. There's two octaves in that song. It starts low, and it just felt like it should start low, and then it gets gets a little bit more powerful. And again, 
it was, you know, very quick on a Friday afternoon. Nobody else is in the studio. You're just standing there and nailing that thing out the way you feel it at that moment. You have not had time to think about it, to, to practice it, to go over and over. It's just, it comes out. It just is. And that's the way that song came out. And that's, I mean, that's a song I love to sing. And I wish we'd done it live. I wish we'd had albums or product, something to take out with us when we did shows and say, uh, you know, this is our album. These are our songs. But we didn't. It was all just coming together so fast, so frantic and so fast. Then we did movies. We were off to Hollywood to do movies. And then we were off, you know, back at the Fillmore. And then we're off here. It was being pulled in all different directions. All directions. It was a nonstop roller coaster ride, and we were loving it. But it, uh, it, it was. It it never, never slowed down. To think about it, and our manager never stepped in. That's that's one of the shortcomings, I think, of our our management. He should have stepped in and said two things: guys, start playing this album, and I'll make sure you have copies to sell. And two, start writing your own stuff. Come on, let's go. Because I was starting to write, and uh, the band wasn't really open to that yet. We were too young. There were too many other exciting things to cover before we really got down and, and found our voice. Yeah, right. You know, Mike, you know this, and in, in the loons, you have a voice, and, and it's your voice. We were just beginning to learn that. We were just beginning to feel and sense that. Let's talk about those movie appearances, the Riot on Sunset Strip. I mean, that is just a, a really it, a, such an exciting performance that they capture of you guys in the in the faked up version of the Pandora's box. But it feels real. I mean, it's an amazing performance. T- tell us about filming that and those two songs that you performed, because those I feel are probably closer to the essence of what the live watch band, the real watch band was, right? It's very much so the live essence. We were, we had no warning. It was, I think, a Tuesday or a Wednesday. We were getting our equipment ready. We were, I, I actually do recall, we were making our own speakers for the the sound system and we were soldering things together. And Ron Roop came bustling in and said, Hey guys, drop everything. You're leaving tomorrow. You're making a movie. We said, What? Yeah, you're leaving tomorrow. You're making a movie. And off we went. And that we started filming that first night at night when the opening scene, uh, right on Sunset Strip, I can see Sean walk by. I see Billy Flo standing over there. I see Mark going by. So we were in those shots. And then the next morning, they said, oh, by the way, you need two songs. Uh, You're going to record them upstairs in the uh, Elvis Presley recording area. And uh, you got to have originals. So we go, what? You need originals. And so true, we were right writing those things in the elevator going up. <laughs> but it it just it was a watch band. It was loose, it was easy, it was the way it was. And and so what you see in that movie is very much so what we looked like on stage performing in our so, natural habitat. And the recordings, they so they were sort of on a sound stage where they Elvis were. would record his movie songs. Yeah. They were. Was that live that time you were playing? Yeah, absolutely live, straight up. That's the yeah. way it went. No, no second thoughts, no overdubs, nothing on it. That was live, and they're both perfect. Don't need your loving. 
and uh, sitting there standing. Well, and, when you've got 10 minutes to write a song. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, they both sound a little familiar. But, oh, yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> but well, they're originals in inverted commas. <laughs> they are. And I'll tell you what, it's the most fun to see other bands play those same songs. And I see younger bands covering them sometimes, and it's it's just it tickles me when I think how quickly that came about and what we nicked to get that done. But uh, they seem to have a life of their own, so bless them. <laughs> <laughs> What about the actual filming of the of the club sequence? How long did that take? That took about two hours, and uh, we filmed it from very many different angles, and it was fun. And then they would do a cutaway for the the vocals in there, so it was about two hours a uh, hard time on stage, going back and forth, going back and forth. And uh, of course, it was fun. Come on, we're kids. We're on a a Hollywood set. We're gonna film at night. There's parties. Uh, when you weren't filming, you were off performing for you know some producers on a yacht in the out in the the bay. Um, it was living at large. It was fun. Yeah, you were in the movies. That was great. And doing <laughs> your real music. <laughs> no, this this is a funny story. So my parents uh, were always very supportive of me. My little brother, who's three years younger, um, it was in the San Jose Mercury News that that I was in a movie. And it was playing down at the drive-in movies, the moonlight movies. It was drive-in. So my parents go to the movies and, and we all go together. And that shot comes out on stage and they shot it low. So they're looking up at me and I'm dancing all over the place. And my mother turns to my father and says, oh, Art, our son's on drugs. <laughs> no, Mom, I'm not. <laughs> really not. <laughs> oh no. There's <laughs> a very there's a real intensity about your performance. Oh sure. <laughs> I mean the standells look quite kind of wooden standing oh, there doing their songs, but when I you know. guys come on, it's super animated and explosive, really. Well, it's uh that's who we were. That that's what was the joy of playing live on stage. And then the other movie you did, which should get less camera time, is The Love Ins, which was a full-on hippie exploitation summer of love yeah. movie. Yeah, um, that was that was a strange one, and it, it was strange because there was conflict going on during that, and they had wanted me to do some part. They wanted me to do a, a drugged-out rabbit and, and hop across the stage saying, hippity-hop, hippity-hop, you know. <laughs> and I said, I'm not doing that. And I know it probably didn't sit well with the producer on that one. However, the song The Lovins is a good song. And if you ever thought about a San Francisco love-in song, that's it. It's structured differently. 
than most songs. The second verse is different than the first verse. It's held out two bars longer. It's an interesting song. And I thought Mark's guitar playing on it is just phenomenal. And it yeah. sounds very much like Yorma Kalkinen, which not was his influence yeah. as a teacher. <laughs> not a bad thing. It, you definitely can tell it's from San Francisco and not L.A. Right. And and that song, again, was just written for you, and you learned yeah, it very right. quickly, right? Very quickly. Because you sound so natural singing that and the whole band. I mean, you, you would swear that the band must have written it until you look <laughs> at the songwriting credits. Well, uh, probably down the road we might have started right. Well, No Way Out was, was written impromptu in the moment. So, yeah, we were starting. Uh, Gone and Passes By, I wrote that in a hotel room the night before. So we were beginning. We were just beginning yeah. to write and, and understand our, our capabilities. Gone and Passes By. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that song. I love that. It's one of your greatest songs love, and very much a Bo Diddley groove, which I I love Bo love. Diddley. I love Bo Diddley. And uh, I had heard this, heard this thing in my mind, watching the other guys record other things. So that night when we went back to the Sunset Orange Motel, I said, Sean, pick up an acoustic guitar and just play this rhythm track for me. I just hear it in my head. And I just started writing lyrics. And I said, change to this chord and change to this chord and then come back. And then we went in the next morning and recorded it that fast. It was that fast. And um, it was done. And we moved on to another song because Ed Cobb probably had some other songs he wanted recorded and hadn't counted on this one waltzing in through the door. But we just did it. And it was probably... Uh, very typical of the type of music that, that we played on stage and the groove that we got from it. And so it was a fun, fun, fast song. And I think the fast ones are the best. And who's playing the sitar on that? Uh, that was Mark. Yeah. We, real, uh, we, real sitar. Real sitar. It, we went down, down the road. There was a music store and Richie Podolar uh, had a motorcycle. Really, really nice Harley. And one of the guys wheeled the, that motorcycle down to the record store and said, look, we'll trade you this motorcycle for a sitar. And we brought the sitar back. And then when Richie found out, of course, he went down and got his, his motorcycle back and a lot of yelling ensued. But we <laughs> we borrowed that sitar and that was leverage. And Mark sat in and cross-legged and in a half an hour learned how to play that. Wow. It was that quick. Oh, uh, yeah, it's magical. It's such a beautiful song. I mean, it's great. It's got everything. Well, and that, again, is indicative of the, of the caliber of the people I was playing with, that they yeah. were that flexible. Uh, he's playing harp. Marx is playing harpsichord on Baby Blue. Uh, we were very, very quick, quick learners. Yeah, we had to right. be. Well, I mean, you think you had that amazing experience of creating something and within 24 hours it was recorded it something was that didn't exist before <laughs> 24 hours earlier that's, that's there's no more exciting feeling than that 
yeah. when it works. So, and here we are it, still talking about it, or you know, 55 years later. Never saw that one coming. Never <laughs> thought. Yeah, I was done. When I was done with music, I was done. There was another life to pursue. Um, it's. I mean, I think the album wasn't even out when the band kind of started to unravel during the summer of 67. Um, I think Mark left in July or something like that, and you soon after. How did, how did that all play out? Two things happened. One was the disappointment in our albums not being us. And two, uh, boy, there were some weird drugs going around. And it, it affected Mark the most. Um, I, I will say this. Many people may have thought that I was the druggiest in the band. I really was not. Because to play music is such a, a gift that it, it used to drive me nuts when I'd see bands out there with, with roadies holding up the guitarist because they just simply couldn't play. They were so stoned and loaded. And I thought, that's taking something away from the audience. And that really, that that burned me when, when I saw that. And Mark was was drifting. He was he was not happy. This was not the band that he had envisioned. It it wasn't as melodic. It wasn't as much like the airplane. I think that he really wanted to be. And uh, Danny Face sang a lot more like Marty Ballin than anybody else, and that's what I think the attraction was. So we were falling apart. And once it fell apart, we we tried for a while, but the magic was gone, and. Uh, I just decided it was time to go back to school. You know, if this isn't going to work, uh, I've got other other things to do, other right. roads to travel. And, and when you actually look at the dates, you know, that band was together for about 18 months. Yeah. That was it. Less. Yeah, um, it, was a, it was a meteor streaking across the sky. Right. You accomplished such a lot in that time, even if – you know, the the final decisions weren't in your hands. You know, those singles and then two two albums. Of, you know, the second one, The Inner Mystique, that's less than half of that is actually the chocolate, the real chocolate yeah. watch band, right? Um, but again, they're, they're, they're great songs. I'm, I'm not like everybody else, your version of that. I ain't no miracle worker. Yeah. We really didn't have much time. I mean, those albums were recorded in three days, two or three days. And so much of that time, Ed was such a, a perfectionist. I mean, he'd spend half an hour getting a drum sound on the bass drum. And uh, while the rest of us just sat around. And then instead of recording into the night and going all night long, there would be a party that we were supposed to play at for a producer. So we'd be gone out of the studio. We really didn't have that much time in the studio to perfect our art, to write more songs, to record more songs. It was just so fast. You think part of the problem might have been that you guys were based in the Bay Area and the recording yes. was all happening in Los Angeles? Absolutely. They were paying for time. And uh, and also, the Standells, wonderful band, much more malleable than we were. We were jerks. And sometimes we just simply say to Ed Cobb, no, we're not going to do that song. That's not us. And he thought that, uh, you know, he, he wanted more control. He was a very controlling person. He knew what he wanted. And he had this vision of who we were, but 
He'd never come to one of our shows. He should have come to one of our shows to see what we really were all about. Never did. And uh, he might have handled it a little bit differently. But he had time time to kill, time to get things done, and time to move on. He had other bands he was working with. Right. Yeah, I mean, talented guy, but it seems like he was imposing his vision onto you Mm -hmm. rather than helping you realize your own artistic vision as a band. Absolutely. That's the best way uh, I've heard it put. Yeah. But obviously a super talented guy. I mean, he had a history, you know, I mean, he could write songs, he could produce, he could sing. Oh, yeah. But he was kind of from another era, whereas you guys were at the cutting edge. (laughs) Really? Yeah, and and we we uh, gave him so much static sometimes. I mean, it, 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 we were, yeah, we were not the easy malleable group, right? So yeah, so in in the end, it was easier for him to just grab some tracks that he'd recorded That's with it. other bands. Like the second album is half of it is a band called the Yo Yos, who never even got to put a record out. I don't think, except for that. Well, that's news to me. I didn't even know who they were. So it, uh, there was no explanation. There was, and there was never any follow up from our manager. He never sat down and said, wait a minute, you're cutting these guys short. You don't understand what you've got here. Give them a break. Give them a chance to finish their album. And that was so discouraging to Mark. Mark was the first one to go. And he just said, you know, this is not going the direction I hoped it would. So how long did, did the band continue without Mark, but with you? Probably about two months and we tried out some other guitarists and uh it just wasn't clicking it wasn't working uh nothing was coming out of the studio we weren't learning any new music because also mark had to practice the 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 practice room where we went and learned our music in his garage and that was gone so we were looking for a place to play and uh then gary left Gary said, I'm going to go join Mark in the Tingle Guild. And so it was down to the three of us. And that's when I said, I'm done. I'm, I'm done with this. It, it was a great ride, but uh, it's not going to not going to happen. So, so we, were you still enrolled in school this whole time? Or I sure you... was. I yeah. had to because of the draft. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, they were after us. Everybody, they were after us for the draft. So you had to keep a few classes going and keep your grades up so that you didn't uh, end up learning how to clean a rifle. So in addition to recording records, filming movies, and playing gigs, you were still having to maintain was, your grades at school. I, that's true. <laughs> that's true. And I was not the best student. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah, I had other things on my mind. But yeah, you had to, you had to keep going. And I had friends that I went to high school with that were coming home in body bags every month. I mean, it was, it was grim. It was scary. Yeah. So after the watch band, after you dropped out of the watch band, you just full time got through yourselves into academic life, right? That's it. That's it. I'm done. Yeah. And the sad part about two years after that, I got a call from Sean and said, we want to get together and, the whole band got together in Santa Cruz. We went out to lunch together, and Mark said, I'm so sorry I broke up this band. Is there any way we can get this thing back together? And I said, the magic's gone. The magic's gone. It's moved on. It's uh, it's just not there anymore for me. Yeah, no, the, the whole music scene had changed by then. It was a mm-hmm. different, different kind of music. Very much Different so. audiences. 
nothing's wrong, girl. You're feeling so tough. Just one girl for me, and that ain't enough. Ha! I gotta love them all, babe, not just a few. So, you know, the, the next thing that happens, you know, it's sort of in the Watch Band story is 1973, Lenny Kay puts the yeah. Watch Band song on, the, on his album <laughs> Nuggets, which is an extremely important album, very influential album. And of all the songs, he picks a song that you don't actually sing the lead vocal on. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> so tell me about Let's Talk About Girls. I mean, because you, you started recording it back in the 60s, right? I did. Talk About Girls was in the list. It was on a Friday afternoon, and it came through, and they said, we've got about 10 more minutes. I, and I said, well, let me at least put a vocal down on this this one song track. And I said, fine. And I laid it down really quick. I think I had one shot at it, and I said, look, we got to wrap it up because you got to fly home. You're, fla- you're playing tonight somewhere in the Bay Area. So we didn't think anything of it because they told us we were coming back to finish the album. So much to my chagrin and surprise, as you find out later, that uh, they wrapped it up. They just decided, all right, I'll just fill it into everything else. And uh, I hate that version of that song. Uh, I don't care for it at all. It's it's smarmy. It, it's not the watch band. And it doesn't sound like the watch band. And so I always avoided that song until Alec Palau gave me a chance to re-sing it on... Uh, on his compilation album. And I said, this is what it would have sounded like. This is what it sounded like before Ed Cobb messed around with it. Yeah. That was very disappointing. Yeah. I imagine. And, and that must've been when you got the album and there's somebody else singing some of the songs. Hell? Yeah. Load up the shotgun. What, uh... <laughs> <laughs> what do you know about this guy, Don Bennett, who sang these vocals? Cause he also was the co-writer of, uh, are you going to be there at the love it? Know nothing about him. Never met him. Never saw him. He was a friend of Ed Cobb's. He's a studio musician. Yeah, and uh, that's all I know. Uh, never, we never cross paths. Right. So yeah, for many years that was the song the Wash Band were best known for. Was this song? Are you he, kidding me? Sweet young thing is a thousand times better than that. I mean, there oh, are man. other songs. Misty yeah, yeah. You've, got, you've got a dozen songs that are better than that one, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. What? What? I can't go back and change history, although I'd like to. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, when we're I'm... doing our best to at least set the history right and, and give you, you the credit that you deserve. And, uh, yeah. you know, people like Alec Palau have done a lot to make that happen. Um, oh, bless him. He sure has. History. He sure has. What a what a wonderful supporter. And uh, it's strange to meet somebody that knows more about your band than you do. <laughs> yeah. So when did you become aware that, um, you know, the, 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 the watch band's music had a new, you know, generation of listeners? Uh, it came out with uh, the Nuggets. And funny story, I'm working for an aerospace company and I'm working with astronauts and I'm working, going down to launches, satellites and the space shuttle going up. So my mind's in a very different area. And I had a dear friend who was a musician and we talked every once in a while. And I told him one time that I was in a band 
And this was the name of the band, but most people had never heard of it. And uh, so he just kind of accepted it. It was you know, like every young kid. They were in a band until he walked into my office one day with the Rolling Stone magazine. It was the top 100 best rock and roll albums ever. And he said, you said you were in a band. And I said, yeah. He said, uh, that wasn't very popular. I said, yeah. And he said, then why are you looking at me from the Rolling Stone magazine? And there it was, the 79th album, Nuggets, and they picked our picture, and there's me grinning at everybody. He said, <laughs> you didn't tell me you were in that kind of band. <laughs> so I was in Rolling Stone. <laughs> That's when it hit me, and I started getting phone calls from kids. I get these wonderful calls. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm 14 years old. I live in Cleveland. I love the Chocolate Watchmen. Are you David Aguilar? I say, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I'm not worthy. And then he'd hang up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he was an ugly things reader. Oh, I'm sure he was. But uh, and, and, you know, Mike, you, you've helped us. Uh, there's so many wonderful friends that have helped us keep this going and uh, kept the word out there. It's honest music. It's just honest, fun music. Right. And and. You know, you've been doing reunion. You know, the band is reunited. Uh, it, I guess, the first one was around 1999 when you got back yep. together. Sixty-six, ninety-nine. Uh, that was the, it. Uh, the festival that Anya and I put together yeah. in San Diego, and um, you know, you had several of the original other original members. We uh, did. You had Gary and you had Bill. I had Billy and and. Timmy, who'd come in later, he wasn't, we weren't in the band together, but he played for the watch band to, to finish out some contracts. That was a strange, that was a strange show. And, and you probably didn't know this, but we had finished an album. I had come back into the music, uh, different circumstances. I suddenly found myself out in the Bay Area when there was a compilation album being done. And I jumped into the studio and did a couple of covers of songs really quickly. But learned that I really liked it and and met uh, some other musicians that were familiar with the watch band. And we went to Shasta and recorded an album. It's never been released. It's very, uh, it's more a rock album than than anything else. It's a good album. It's the first album I wrote, everything on it. And we thought we were going to start playing as a chocolate watch on that new album. But the lead guitarist, Phil Skoma, backed out at the last minute and said, uh, I will not play any watch band covers when you had given us the invitation to 6699. And so we picked up Timmy very quickly and learned our chocolate watch band stuff again. But that album sits and it's a remarkable album in many ways that it should be released. But um, it varies in sound. I mean, some people would say that's not the watch band, but it is. It is. Yeah, <laughs> and and you've made several albums since then. Most yes, recently, most recently, this is my voice. This is my voice. Yeah, tell me, tell us about that one. Uh it's done in bits and pieces, and uh, we did some recording with Daryl Hooper. When Sky Saxon had passed away, I said I would really want to do a cover. I can't seem to make you mine because I love that song. So Daryl sat in on it. So he's on a couple of the songs. And it was pieced together. And towards the end, it was accelerated very quickly. And uh, I had brought in some songs that I really wanted to record. The band wasn't interested in it. They were they were done. And so I said uh, to Timmy, hey, look, you know, help me finish this song and we'll go 
co-writing credits on it. But, uh, you know, I came in with the song and the lyrics. He just added some some instruments on it. But it was the only way to get it. And this is my voice. That's the song. This is my voice. That's the only way to get it on the album. Uh, or else it wouldn't have been there. And it was, it was I love recording, uh, but it was very rushed and very quick and very fast. But uh, Secret Rendezvous, I love the way that one came out. And Judgment Day, I love the way that came out. And I had written both of those back in Colorado by myself. Yeah. And I had recorded them and brought them out. And then the guys just uh, just mostly copied over it and, and did it. But uh, I would give anything to go into a studio with a band and create an album together. That'd be a lot of fun. Right, right. So... Speaking of fun, we're going to be playing a show in a few weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we are. (laughs) Yes, we are. And I can't wait. I love the Whiskey A-Go-Go. Did you play uh, the Whiskey back back in the day? We did a lot. And I barely remember it. Back in the day, we did one night when we were uh, recording. And we we went down and and did a set. And then we came back just before COVID hit with Daryl. And Daryl was playing keyboards and we did some seed songs and some covers, but um, it's a fun place. It's, it's where rock and roll was born. I think in, in LA, it's one of those magical places uh, like the coconut grove in Santa Cruz. So I can't wait to get back up on that stage and just enjoy the night and and the loons. Oh my God. I love these guys. We, uh, (laughs) we had so much fun playing together in in London and and Paris. Uh, They're such a great band. Well, thanks. Well, yeah, we're really looking forward to it. Um, by the time this podcast comes out, the show will be happening very, very soon. <laughs> uh, good, good. Uh, we've got some rehearsals coming up uh, next week, I think it is. We do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we better get ready. We got another practice tonight, and uh, we're going to be ready for you. Oh, I know you will. You know what? Uh, the loons remind me so much of the young watch band and they're they're all credible musicians at their loose and they're they have fun so i'm looking forward to it it's a gift for me i mean how must it feel to you know still be talking about the chocolate watch band you know something you really did for 18 months back in 1966 and 67 and and it's come back to haunt you ever since you've been doing it now for another 30 years on top of that it is, but I've had kind of an odd life in that sense that I've jumped into different things and they come back. I've written a lot of children's books and illustrated them and they've come back. And it's just, it's a gift. I'm most fortunate to, to have had that opportunity and most fortunate not to have blown it, really. Well, you've you've done great quality work and that's why it has endured. I think that's really what it comes down to. If you do good work, eventually people will find it, discover it, and uh, you will be rewarded. Maybe not financially, <laughs> but spiritually or, or artistically or in some way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mentioned at the top of the podcast, 
Dave and the Chocolate Watch Band will be playing at the Whiskey A Go Go in Hollywood on January 11th, 2024. Hope to see you there. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and hosted by Mike Stacks. That's me. Ugly Things Magazine is available at the very coolest record and bookstores and at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com. Where you can also order back issues, vinyl, books and CDs and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate us, leave a review and spread the word to your friends. We would also appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, psychedelic music, and more. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Glenn Gibbs, Charlie Konisaka, Sophia Swartz, Keith Patterson, Dean Curtis, David Biasotti, David Jones, Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Stephen Schmidt, J. Paul Ryger, Derek Davidson, and Craig Easton. Thank you, all of you, for your support. Thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.